Hey everyone, it's Michael. In this episode, Stefan and I spoke with Jessica Gephardt, an assistant professor of environmental science at American University in Washington, DC. Jessica's research focuses on the role of the global seafood trade in sustainable and resilient food systems. We spoke with Jessica about work she has done to improve our accounting of seafood trade flows in order to better understand just where our seafood is going and where it is coming from, and why this is important to understand from an environmental sustainability perspective. We also talked about more recent work that she has been doing to examine the impacts of the COVID pandemic on the seafood sector. And finally, as is now common in this show, we asked Jessica about her own understanding of her professional identity as an interdisciplinary scholar focusing on applied social ecological challenges. This is the Finding Sustainability Podcast. Well, so it's kind of hard not to start with just this question, which is just like, how are things anyway? Like, so you're at an American, you just got into your office for the first time in a while and you taught today. Was that like the first time for the semester or what? Yeah, it was the second time I, I taught for the semester. I taught on Monday. It was about 15 minutes after the like global Zoom outage. So it was a bit chaotic, like even more so than I was expecting the first day teaching online to be. Um, but I have, I've been working at home exclusively. We just moved into a brand new building, actually. So this is my first time ever working in, in this office. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been pretty different, but I guess last year was my first year here at AU. And I guess, you know, I was sort of already prepared for it to be a bit of a difficult year adjusting to the new roles that you have as, as a professor compared to as a postdoc. Um, I will say it was, it was difficult in different ways than I expected, but maybe because I already had that mentality going in, I, I was felt a little prepared in that sense and also had no baseline for what it was supposed to be. So um, maybe, maybe that, that helped me manage things a, a little bit. So how are things going at American generally? Well, if they're going all right, we're fully online. Um, yeah for the semester. I've, I've been really enjoying my, my department and it's been exciting getting into a brand new uh, building here that has, you know, endless whiteboard space on all the walls and lots of uh, collaborative spaces, which has been great. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for when we can actually use the space here a little bit more. Um, I guess given, given kind of my line of work, I've always worked a lot with people remotely. So that hasn't changed. Um, I have been able to maintain a lot of those projects. A lot of my work is computational and computer-based anyway. So, um, so that's made it less, I think, of a disruption to, to my core research, at least from the, the logistical side. Mm. Yeah. Okay. What were some of the things that were difficult in the transition from the postdoc to the assistant professor for you? Well, teaching, teaching is a lot, was a lot. It was a lot of work um, getting the materials together. It was a pretty big class. Um, last semester, I think there were like 50 some, 50 some students and 
I think I just wasn't expecting the wide range in backgrounds either of, of the students. It's an introductory class, but it's introductory for, for people who are intending to be majors in environmental science. Uh, so I really had the expectation that they were going to have more of a science background and more of a quantitative background. Um, and so there was, there was a little bit of a course correction. I think it's also just really hard to know um, how, how difficult an assignment's going to be. You know, you're, you're so far away from having um, initially learned these topics that it, it's really hard to put yourself back in their shoes and know what's difficult. So the first exam I wrote was too hard. <laughs> Um, and they were not happy. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I made adjustments for it to be fine for their, for their grades, but I think it really, they were really, um, they were a lot of students who were used to getting A's on everything who did not get A's on that and were pretty, pretty unhappy. But I think beyond that, I, I, I felt that I just had so much power and, and so little direction. Um, you know, you just, you just get to make all of these decisions uh and sometimes it you know sometimes points just feel arbitrary in a way and and so you you want things to be fair but you're also trying to be understanding of of humans and individual cases and you're sort of the final judge your sample size of students is small at that point especially at the beginning so you just don't know when they're maybe taking advantage of you being new or when to be understanding. And I don't know, I guess there was a lot of sort of reflection of what, what's the point of even, why, why are we here? And so you're standing there in a moment trying to make a decision about what's the rule and suddenly you're um, trying to figure out why are we all here in the first place and how do my rules align with that broader, broader motivation. And um, so, yeah, I feel like, I feel like that part was, was uh, tough number one. Um, number two is finding the right balance between research and putting time into teaching because you want to do a good job. You know that like that the students are, they're paying a lot of money to be here. They're looking for good education. You, you know you can do better than, than what you're doing, but then you also know that you have to, that you have responsibilities for your research too. And so finding that right balance is, is, uh, tough especially if you want a life did you feel like you had training for teaching before that that you had experience or that you had classes or mentors who gave you advice on how to deal with those types of situations from in teaching um i i would say no and i i feel like i actually did go a bit out of my way to try to get some of that my first research experience was actually in a chemistry education research lab. So they, they were researching how students learn and what, um, what quality teaching looks like and how you foster creative and critical thinking skills in, in classrooms. And so they were really focused on that. And so I came to research from the very beginning thinking about where teaching and research intersect. Um, and then as a graduate student, I took classes specifically on syllabus design and, um, you know, did some guest lectures and that kind of thing. And so I feel like I was trying to, and then yet you never have, you're never making all the decisions at that point. You know, you still, any teaching experience you're in, there's someone still kind of above you, you get guidance 
from them about what what the goals are, some additional materials. And so it just, yeah, I think I didn't know what, maybe what questions to have asked or what things to think about. Um, and it was interesting because I, I actually, through that process, I was thinking, um, you know, I feel like we've pushed, been pushed in a way in our, the teaching philosophies and teaching statements that we write for positions, they've kind of moved away from, from the philosophy part of it, of, of why are we here in, in the first place. And, um, and I think that that, uh, you know, it makes sense for, you don't want just a bunch of academics, like, going on and on about, um, about the, that kind of reasoning. But at the same time, I don't know that we are still really pushed toward thinking about what, what are we here for? Is it just to get a degree? Is it to get a little bit of exposure to this thinking? Is it to really develop applicable skills? Um, yeah, well, kind of, kind of why, why are we here in the first place? Why are we here in the classroom? Why are we here at this university kind of thing? Yeah. 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 I mean, I can, I really understand the, this perspective of kind of suddenly getting thrown into a, a situation where it's like, Oh no, you're the boss. You need to make up these rules. And I feel like when you, when you see other people do that, it feels, you know, your brain kind of projects a, a certain reasonableness onto that procedure is like, Oh, they must have reasons for doing that or that, et cetera. And that will follow them. But when you're the person having to be like, okay, it's this way, not that way you realize it can feel rather arbitrary. And a lot of it is it's simply a decision needs to be made. And so I'm going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly because I have to. (laughs) No, I think that's exactly it. And I I feel really lucky that I did have good mentors and I took a class with my PhD advisor and he was, he was a really excellent teacher. And I feel like that can create some of that default of what you can default to when you've seen Mm. a good example of it, but it doesn't, it doesn't cover all the, all the many decisions. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you'd want like assistant professors to be the ones actually taking these courses on teachings because you want to be able to think about these things as you're actually doing the teaching as opposed to like several years before. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's totally true. And actually over the summer in preparation for teaching online, I took an online course about teaching online and it wasn't so much that there was anything I learned specifically in the course that was useful, but being a student in an online course was very useful. Like seeing how the materials online are organized and how assignments and reminders go out um, at different points and when that's useful and when it's not. And where did I myself lose track of assignments in this online course to inform, you know, how, how can I set this up to make it, better from a student perspective. And really the only way to do that is to kind of be a student again. Have you heard any feedback from the students about their perspective with the online teaching? Do you generally get the impression that they are adapting pretty well or not? Yeah, I think it's been, I think it's been mixed. I've, I haven't heard much this semester. Of course, it's, we're just still in the first week here. I had one student come to office hours and he said that he thought the classes across the board were already better than in the spring when everyone was kind of just flying by the seat of their pants. But in the spring, I got, I got really good feedback from a number of students about trying to keep the online course as similar to an in-person course as possible. So uh, you obviously have to change some things because you're not there in person. But they really liked that we 
did that the lecture carried on in a kind of similar fashion. The breakout um, pieces were covering similar topics and discussions as we did before. I whereas other courses they had, I think, were really just were really upended and took an entirely different form. Um, there was a lot coming out at the time that you know it's beneficial to have something that's asynchronous uh, to accommodate people's different situations, um, and I think that that's true. But I think at the same time, the students right now did not sign up to take online courses. And I think that they signed up to really with the expectation that they would be in, in more of a traditional uh, classroom setting. So they, I think they have been liking, um, liking that. Now, I, I'm, I'm in a pretty fortunate position that nobody in my it's fairly small and nobody in my class is in a time zone that makes it impossible to attend um, synchronously. And so far, we've not had major uh, internet issues. Of course, I record things and provide all of those, those extra materials for that situation. But um, yeah, I guess that's, that's sort of the feedback that I've been getting from them so far. No, that's great. Hopefully it continues to go well. <laughs> and so Jessica, is there like a synergy between your research and your teaching as well? Do you, do you teach about some of the topics that you do research on, like the seafood trade, resilient food systems, et cetera? Yeah, I do some. Um, so this intro class is a pretty broad, uh, it, covers, it covers quite a bit of ground. Mm -hmm. um, but the food systems one that I think touches on so many aspects, you can get into impacts on biodiversity, you can get into nutrient pollution um, and carbon emissions. So I'd say that it allows you to talk about a lot of these topics you would otherwise and draw on examples that students care about. I find that a lot of students are excited about, um, about the food system and there are quite a few, few people who are interested in sort of the marine, marine environment broadly. So I pull those examples, but, um, but it's, it's, it doesn't get into a ton of depth on it. I go a little bit more depth on, on some of the fishing fisheries management and trying to just draw more diverse examples of, um, small-scale fisheries and what a fishery can look like in Kiribati where we do some work when a lot of people here have in their head like a, a cod fishery or um, or maybe like a lobster fishery or, or more U.S. focused. So try to bring in some of those pieces to expand what they think of uh, in for fisheries but um, still still keeping it kind of fairly surface level in mm. in this intro course. And so Jessica, could, could you, could we take a step back and, and ask you about what got you interested in, in studying what you study now in the first place? Was it something you got drawn into as a part of your PhD program? Um, was it something you were looking for when you selected your PhD? I, I understand that you got your PhD at University of Virginia in environmental science. So was your dissertation about these same topics? Yes. So my, my dissertation was on global seafood trade, but it did not start out that way. Um, so I came to the University of Virginia to work with Mike Pace, who had done a lot of ecosystem ecology work. I was interested in doing more ecosystem modeling, applying network kinds of methods to ecosystems and trying to understand the impacts of zebra mussels in the Hudson River, actually. So I spent spent a semester or a summer up in um, 
up in near the Hudson River studying studying zebra mussels and looking at temperature impacts and their impacts on on ecosystems. I got involved with work on seafood trade really as a side project um, initially. So there's a professor, Paulo Dodorico, who's now at uh, UC Berkeley. He does some work on virtual water trade and was had been doing work researching essentially how much water does it take to produce the crops that are traded? What's this kind of embedded water in those crops? And under, trying to understand that from a food security and water security standpoint. Um, well, I thought it would be a sort of simple thing to answer. Um, what does what does that look like for for seafood and fisheries? Um, it wound up being extremely complicated. So a lot of the work that had been done was really on agricultural crops, and I was thinking, oh, it'd be it'd be kind of cool to bring seafood in. They they're interesting from a water standpoint because um, they live in water when it comes to freshwater fish but they don't really use water in a consumptive way. Marine fish don't really use fresh water at all. And then aquaculture does um, from the feeds that go in and uh, as well as some of the water that gets uh, pumped in to, to maintain ponds and so forth. And so I was like, oh, this seems like it's a potentially interesting, interesting question. Um, but it wound up being extremely complicated because it's hard to figure out that piece of, of water use for, for seafood. Um, but it is actually equally hard to trace seafood through trade. Um, and that is, is where I wound up spending a lot of time thinking about, about seafood trade and um, how we can connect that trade data to the environmental impacts on one side and the sort of human outcomes and food security outcomes on the other side. Um, I guess to, to go into a little more specificity on that, uh, the sea global production data, if you look at seafood production, it's generally reported by species. So you'll have like Atlantic salmon and coho salmon. But then when you go to trade data, it gets reported in terms of commodities, things like salmon fillets and canned salmon. And so you can have one species that goes into more than one commodity. And any given commodity can be made up of more than one species um, sort of as, as a group. So it creates this this mix of the data that makes it really hard to see any signal of um, how do changes in consumption maybe drive this in environmental change or how does environmental change sort of propagate through these networks and create food security disruptions. So you have this um, big problem and that's that's been one piece of something I've been working on for a while is trying to uh, resolve that data to understand this in environment food security uh, impacts. Okay, so this is a really great segue to this paper that you wrote in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, in that paper, entitled To Create Sustainable Seafood Industries, the United States Needs a Better Accounting of Imports and Exports. I mean, we're, you're kind of, you're headed in the same direction in this paper as you, it sounded like you were just now in, in talking about, okay, we need better data on what's going where, we need to account for this better. And you use this example in the beginning of that paper that I wanna ask you about. So I have two questions. One, in the beginning of this paper, you quote this figure that what the US imports 90% of all of the, the seafood that's consumed there. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's a statistic that's been uh, floating around for a while um, that it gets repeated again and again that the US that 90% of the seafood consumed in the U.S. is imported, which implies on the flip side that only 10% is 
is from here. Right. And that- so um, the first question is, why is that misleading? So to essentially ask you to talk a bit about what the argument was in that paper. And then relatedly, why is it important to actually do this accounting? Right. Because I feel like the other part of that paper was then, okay, but in the end, we care about like sustainability or resilience. What's the connection that I feel like you were starting to get to already, but I just wanted to make it transparent. What is the connection between better accounting practices and better trade data and sustainability, however we might want to define it? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with uh, that paper and a little bit of the motivation, which gets to some of why this number matters in particular. So I've been hearing that number floating around for a while. It's uh, really commonly used in news and um, people start out a lot of presentations and papers quoting that to say just how dependent the U.S. is on on these foreign seafood um, producers. I myself, though, could not reproduce that number. So as I was digging into all of this trade data and really trying to get at it, I was not getting 90%. And I, as a grad student, I just assumed that meant that I was wrong, that I was missing something. And I kind of like, <laughs> yeah, right. just like buried it in the back of my head and like moved on. I'm like, I, there's something I don't know what it is, but I'll just, I'll deal with that later. Um, but then under, under the Trump administration, more recently, he's, uh, this administration has been really focused on these trade these trade balances and trade deficits very broadly. Um, so this administration has been concerned with just what's the accounting? Are we, are we consuming more of our own stuff or more of other people's stuff? And that's been kind of their, their approach to trade policy. Um, so in line with that, this number of 90% of seafood consumed in the U S was getting rolled out at kind of higher and higher levels. And you had uh, secretary of commerce, Wilbur Ross repeating it. And it's showing up in uh, in a recent executive order, and and so this this really got me saying, okay, this is starting to become a motivation, and it's showing up in these presentations about how we're going to prioritize U.S. seafood trade policy, and this is on, this is being used as justification for us needing to do things differently, and so then I pulled that number back from the back of my head. I'm like, all right, I've got to figure out. Like, how, where did this number come from? How did they get to it? And why can I not reproduce this number? Um, so that was quite a rabbit hole, but I found, I did figure out what, what the difference was. And it comes down to what's possibly the most boring thing imaginable, which is that um, production data gets reported in live weight, whole fish. So like a whole salmon. Trade data is reported in terms of the commodity weight. Um, so pounds of fillets, pounds of cans of, of salmon. And you have to use a conversion factor to get from one to the other. So that way you can make this apples to apples comparison of, um, of whole fish produced and, and whole fish exported and whole fish imported. So we apply these conversion factors um, to to try to get to the the apparent consumption. We we don't measure consumption. We just take uh, production, subtract off our exports, and add on our imports. And that is the apparent consumption. So these numbers become really critical in it. And it turns out that the numbers that NOAA uses is really different than the numbers that um, the Food and Agriculture Organization or um, the EU uses. And so I, I went through to compare what these numbers are and um, 
and I would say that I think there are some issues with documentation and where those the U.S.'s numbers came from, and they also just don't align very well with with the kinds of products that we're now um, importing. And so, as a result, you wind up with it looking like we are exporting a lot more like whole fish equivalent um, than than we really are, most likely, and bringing a lot more in. And that's kind of what sways the number uh, in a general sense. There is a second piece there, though, which which became really relevant to the trade war with China, which is that anything that gets exported from the U.S., if it is processed, it it becomes an ex and exported again from whatever country imported it, it becomes an export of that country. So in the case of China, if they import some pink salmon as frozen whole salmon and they export canned salmon back to the U.S. or something, then, then it's going to look like that is a product of China, even if that fish was produced in the U.S. And China's actually doing a, a lot of um, processing of seafood. They're the number one processor of seafood in, in the world. And so they and they are processing a good bit of U.S. seafood. So we were looking at what's the additional effect of that seafood that's exported to China for processing and coming back in, which was then also exposed to the potential um, tariffs uh, for products coming from China. So I think that's the first answer. So you might need to remind me of the second question. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I also want to just respond to that. I mean, it's, that was, the part of the paper that really struck me the most was this idea that um, we're in fact, and this is kind of what you, when people kind of talk about globalization writ large, not just about seafood, right? These are the stories you hear is like to, to put a car together, you need to visit like 13 different countries because the doors were made here and then put over there and then brought back here, et cetera. And it becomes kind of bewildering to the human brain just to think about, okay, how would you possibly account for all of these things? I mean, it reminds me of, I was talking to Stefan before the interview, this book called Ecological Intelligence by Daniel Goleman, where he's kind of trying to make this argument that we need to develop more of this ecological intelligence being this understanding of the impacts that our choices have as consumers potentially on the world around us. How do you actually get a sense of all of the diffuse impacts, right? As an economist would call them externalities that your decisions make and you know, my initial reaction to that is it just feels, as I said, it feels, it sounds bewildering to actually try to account for all this stuff because suddenly it's moving over here and then it's moving back there. And um, have you ever felt daunted in, in trying to, to wrangle this like hugely messy trade network? Oh my goodness. Yes. Well, so this project of trying to disentangle it, I mean, it's, it's been dragging on for years now. And every time I think I'm getting close there's one one more thing that I feel like I need to account for and um, now I have a data scientist who's working for me or working with me um, Kelvin Graspe and he's he's been great and he's been really helping me uh, get back to some of the, the details and we're I think now getting close but every like I said I, sh I shouldn't swear to that but um, mm. we, so I we're getting we're it is more complicated than I think anyone can really describe and you can go down a lot of rabbit holes. We're trying to get the first pass. Interestingly though, we, um, or funny enough, we had submitted a, an NSF proposal about developing um, a database and we put this together and tried to explain just how complicated it was. And one of the reviews came back was, 
it just doesn't seem that hard. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so, um, yeah, and so they're like, yeah, it, it, this seems like a simple problem, so it probably is not worth worth funding. And um, so we need to, we do need to probably work on communicating these these levels of of, ha- of just how challenging the problem is. Um, but it, it, so it is daunting. But I think we still, what we still need though, then is what's our first best guess? What's the starting point that we're trying to get beyond in order to understand? Um, where to prioritize data collection. We can't collect everything everywhere, but there are probably points that would really help improve our understanding a lot. Okay. I mean, do you think that perspective from this reviewer um, comes from the kind of the seduction of formal statistics, right? So that I could see someone thinking, well, we have FAO, we have FAO stat, we've got formal statistics on this. Like, what more do you need? Download an Excel sheet. Yeah, I, I think so. And, um, and, uh, yeah, you know, it's like you, you can't spend the whole time talking about uh, where, the, where the data issues are, but just one, one thing that's come up in, in the FAO data as we've, that we, we do use or bring together with other data to get these, some of these estimates is that there are a whole lot of countries that, that where more than 50% of the production they are reporting is just um, osteichthys, which is broadly just bony fish. So all the bony fish just lumped together as their as their production um and then when you when you look at the 200 and some trade codes there they have this hierarchy and there are um and you have to figure out which species go in which and so it it, it becomes quite complicated but then beyond that this this issue of live weight conversion factors is kind of um it's a little bit of a nightmare and it becomes shocking that there this there are really not good data sets uh for this at all and it winds up being that the numbers used can vary by three times, which, you know, when you just look at, you know, uh, one versus three, it might not seem huge, but that's a multiplication factor. You're talking about saying that three times as much fish was, was moving around. Um, so that's, it's pretty, uh, it is, it is a shocking sort of the depths of, of what we really don't know. And to me, that's, it's kind of, fun and interesting, I think, to look at what are the things in the world around us that you would assume are just easily known because they're countable, when in fact, it, there are underlying models and counting these things is really hard, especially at the global scale. So I just have to say that reminds me, I have a good friend who's a geologist and he says, yeah, I go like to these remote places and I look at rocks that no one's looked at before. And I'm always like, wait, we haven't looked at all of the rocks yet. How can we not have seen every rock? And like, no, it turns out there's a lot of rocks out there that we don't know much about. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that um, bringing those issues to light I can spark kind of excitement about science that there are still all of these basic things that are unknown and a lot to discover about the world around us still. Mm. Yeah, Stefan? Yeah, I, mean, I was thinking that transparency and transparency in supply chains and fisheries and not in aquaculture has been an issue for a really long time. And I would be interested in your perspective on, because the FAO data is really, there is other data sets, as you mentioned out there, but it's, it's, it is the most comprehensive data set that I'm aware of about production data in, in both fisheries and aquaculture. And what is what's missing there is it is it a transparency issue and are there perhaps countries and reporting which gets covered up and that's not seen because of the way that it's reported and the way that the data sets are structured or is it simply more of a data management issue that needs to be discussed with 
with the folks who run that, or it could also be specific to the seafood industry where you have a lot of processing on board and you have different types of processing and a lot of re-exports as you explained before. And I'm wondering if you learn a lot about that process from doing individual case studies on supply chains, either within certain species supply chains or within specific countries where they do trade, um, how to improve that, that data collection process so we can learn more and unpack some of, some of the mysteries. Yeah, so, um, so that's a great question. When it comes to the FAO data, one of the biggest gaps that we know about it is related to small scale fisheries. And I think, any, I think you can imagine why it would be so difficult when you have a lot of individual actors who are engaging in fisheries in remote places. They're not, there aren't systems in place in many cases for them to be reporting up how much they're catching. So there's a great uh, study in, um, a few years back that was looking at comparing what the official catch records are for inland catch to how much seafood's being consumed and in those households from like household production and found in in many places this huge gap of um, how much fish has to be being caught versus what's getting reported and we know this is a big issue for inland fisheries but it's also a big issue for small-scale fisheries along the coast it's just the dispersed nature make it's not centralized so there's no centralized way to really collect the data um, illegal and um, intentionally unreported or underreported catch is of course a big issue and anytime you're talking about illegal activities it's hard to get solid data on it because people are intentionally trying to to get around that there are new ways using some satellite imagery data um, from, uh, I guess it's Sky Truth or Global Fishing Watch, um, that's that's trying to get a better guess at, at how much illegal fishing is happening and where. One thing that we will see in in our data and through the approach that we're taking, which um, is is using a mass balance approach, we will see the places where the production and imports cannot explain the exports. So if that if that fish is being caught and it's making its way into an export, we're gonna see the places where, where fish is appearing. Um, but that is, is subject to some of these assumptions about live weight conversion factors. And as you were alluding to, you know, the onboard processing is, um, is an issue. And uh, that actually gets to this other thing, which is that catch data that gets reported as live weight, that is also estimated. Um, most places that are co collecting fishery data, they're collecting data on what's landed, but it might've been headed, gutted, tail on, tail off at the point of landing because it underwent some onboard processing. And so at that point, it gets converted back to the livelihood equivalent. So this is other sort of hidden assumption and hidden factor really in many times not, not updated assumption about how much is lost um, during processing and what that means for how much fish was originally caught. Uh, so, so those are all, of course, um, concerns, but uh, the Sea Around Us project is, has been one of the largest efforts in trying to uh, adjust those, those FAO numbers. Our, our analysis will be able to take either FAO or Sea Around Us production data, and we can look at how differently, how different the results are using those two different production data sets. But FAO is, is ultimately the official one, and so a lot of people want to go with what's, what are the, the official numbers there. It feels like it has like a name brand too, right? Like FAO is yeah. something that people know about. Yeah. Have you done any work on 
case studies where you're trying to look more specifically and in more detail about the fishery supply chain? And if so, how do you design a value chain trade case study? Yeah, so I haven't I haven't been as as involved with many of the value chain studies, but people people have worked on on those for individual countries. You often though have to then be focused more on on individual products and the companies dealing with them. So this is this is kind of one other issue, right? We've got data that gets reported by country, but that's a, an aggregate of a lot of individual um, fishing fleets and, and fishers associations and processing companies that might be operating internationally as well. And so you're kind of grouping that all together in the unit of a country for the purposes of, of trade data and the official reporting. Um, so this is one thing that I think uh, is important to note is that with a lot of these cases, it's not as if the country is really the individual actor. It's really a lot of actors within that country. And, um, and so if you wanna take in a, su a supply chain approach, you then have to sort of pull out one of those sets and understand um, who are the fishers who are engaged in this? Who are the companies that are engaged in this? And follow it along um, that that company approach. Many cases that's going to take you across international uh, international lines, um, but the data is harder to get for for individual companies. There are efforts yeah. though. It it brings it brings up another point which I had a, I wanted to ask about, and that is this idea that it's a broader issue in science. I think that what gets measured is what gets valued. And we measure a lot of things, but we also miss a whole lot more things get measured. And I feel in fisheries and aquaculture production is one of those sectors where we really rely heavily on country level statistics and trade data, which is at the country level. And you just alluded to it there that there's so much more behind the scenes, which goes into that. And just looking at the different types of statistics on aquaculture out there of how many different diverse types of production systems there are how many different environments aquaculture is produced in and all the many different species, some five, 600 different species, I think it was in the FAO world report from this mm -hmm. year. And what are we missing? What are we missing in aquaculture data, which can help us better explain uh, some broader sustainability issues that moves beyond simplified country level statistics, which are very helpful, but we have to, they, I feel like they can lead us to some hypothesis about more nuanced sustainability issues within this sector, which we don't yet have data on. Yeah, well, so, so one wild piece of information that's missing for aquaculture is that we don't have maps of where aquaculture is occurring. So when you turn to agriculture, there are all of these crop maps about where it's occurring. There's satellite imagery to track it, and people have used that to look at how that might play a role in depleting water resources? What's the role of agriculture in deforestation and land use change? And we're able to, to make some of these estimates and to understand how maybe trade might be driving that in some locations or how policies might be affecting it. When it comes to aquaculture, there is a tiny amount of information. And there, despite the fact that quite a few people have worked on trying to uh, use remote sensing to get at aquaculture, that that has not been been cracked yet. We can do it a little bit for some coastal and marine aquaculture, like marine aquaculture, you can, you can see net pens and that kind of thing. But when it comes to inland aquaculture, which is the vast majority of, of aquaculture production, 
um, we really don't currently have an approach. Uh, and so that is creates, yeah, this, this big issue of all of that data then about production has to be aggregated at the national level. And if you look at China, the largest aquaculture producer by far, it's a huge country and um, where you're producing that might have really different implications for both what the environmental impacts are, as well as what the contribution is to sort of local economies and livelihoods. Yeah, it, uh, it makes me think of some of the governance issues which are surrounding aquaculture and particularly tied to its quick growth rate. As far as I've seen it, it's surpassed capture fisheries in the last five years or so, in, in, at least at the global level. And I think there's some 30 or 40 countries which produce now more aquaculture than fisheries. And you get to this space where it's moving too fast. The, the sector is growing very quickly and where institutional development and institutional change can't catch up. And I'm, I'm also interested in hearing that from, from the market and trade perspective. Uh, if so much new fish is entering the market through supply chains, which I would, I would assume are, are established through fisheries supply chains that they're going through similar markets. And it could be wrong. There could be new aquaculture trade markets which are being established. But what are, what are some of the governance challenges there for governing such a fast growing sector where you have so much new product coming into those trade networks? Yeah, so that's a big question to unpack and I definitely don't have the answer to, to all of that. Um, we're still trying, so aquaculture is relatively young. So we'll start with, with that point. It's been growing rapidly for the past three decades or so, but when you compare that to the history and intensity of, of fishing and farming, it's, it's really a young industry. I think that does make it critical for exactly as you say, trying to understand what this expansion looks like over the landscape and where it's occurring. Um, and, and right now we are not doing a particularly good job of tracking that. When it comes to the interaction with, with capture fisheries, I think that it's almost certainly going to be really variable. So you were um, just mentioning just the diversity of species that are being produced um, globally in you know, around, around 500 and that is skewed toward particular species. So a, a whole lot of that is, is carp. I think like 90%-ish maybe is made up of 10, 10-ish species. So while, while we have a huge range produced, it's also highly concentrated. And when you look at something like, like carp, it's really, it's really not probably um, competing on the, with capture fisheries on global supply chains because there's just not the, demand really outside of um, China and parts of Southeast Asia for, for carp products. And so it tends to be pretty domestic and maybe a little bit of regional trade for that. And that is, that is the largest aquaculture produce um, species. However, when you look at other species like um, Vietnamese catfish, that absolutely has had a big impact. The U.S. has been importing a lot of U.S. or a lot of Vietnamese catfish and it's um, definitely competed with channel catfish here in the U.S. The catfish industry has lobbied successfully to put in place a variety of, of strong um, import restrictions, uh, both tariffs and labeling restrictions on Vietnamese catfish to try to stop the flow of that into the U.S. It has been largely unsuccessful. We've seen Vietnamese catfish imports continue to skyrocket and um, in a real stagnation in 
in uh, U.S. catfish production. Now, what does that mean on, on the flip side? So the U.S. has been sort of claiming that the standards, the environmental and um, sort of labor standards for producing Vietnamese catfish might not be up to snuff. And I think that that's something that is very much worth looking into. Um, at the same time, this is not different from really any other sector where a lot of the cheap goods that we get here in the U.S. are because of inexpensive labor elsewhere. And that's something that I think is very much worth looking into uh, and considering when it comes to this expanding trade. So to piggyback on, on Stefan's question about governance, which I think is a, a nice way to get back to the, the second part of my two-parter um, from now, about half mm. an hour ago. So the, the, the second question I had, Jessica, was what about sustainability? Like what, why is it important to develop better accounting of trade flows? And it sounded like we were starting to get towards an answer there where, you know, one policy implication of that 10% number is, okay, do we need more protectionism? Do we need trade tariffs to like improve this balance? So there's, people are obviously drawing policy implications from these numbers and the accounting mechanisms that produce them. But I'd love to hear your own thoughts on, on what are the governance or political implications of how we're doing these accounting measures. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So thanks for, for bringing back that. So starting with, with I guess, the, an international example of why we really care about trade and governance, um, there's an excellent paper by uh, Hans Erickson in Fish and Fisheries a little while back about sea cucumbers and looking at the expansion of the sea cucumber trade network. The idea there was essentially as appetite for sea cucumbers grew in China, they started expanding their sourcing network all over the tropics and over a fairly short time had really been uh, engaging in pretty intense um, sea cucumber fishing throughout a lot of uh, our tropical our tropical oceans and, and coasts. And um, one of the ideas there is that when these huge amounts of demand are spark internationally and you have these uh, fishing fleets that, that come in or, or set up shop to export um, sea cucumbers, there aren't, uh, there aren't rules and regulations in place to manage those fisheries well in light of this huge demand. You previously had, you know, a sort of low baseline demand for sea cucumbers and suddenly it skyrockets. Suddenly you can get a lot of money for exporting it. And if the fishery um, collapses or is, or is fully exploited, maybe you just move next door to the next country and, and places can't really keep up uh, with with that huge surge in sudden surge in demand. Um, so that's kind of one of the concerns in the capture fishery world. But the other big concern is that a place like the US has pretty strong fisheries regulations and, um, and manages our capture fisheries well. Uh, it has, we, we don't produce a whole lot of, of aquaculture, but, um, but likely we'll have fairly fairly strong regulations in that too. The idea is really essentially, are we just exporting our environmental degradation? Are we exploiting our overfishing? Are we exporting our intensive water use, land use, deforestation of mangroves to some other place and patting ourselves on the back for our great sustainability efforts here in the US? So that's, that's the big question, um, I, I think. And sort of on 
back to that paper, one of the that's under that really is underlying this idea of like 90% coming from abroad. And we I think that makes us sort of value our own fisheries and the job that we're doing here a little bit less because it feels like our sustainable fisheries just being exported to someone else. And then we're maybe just importing this cheap, maybe less well-managed seafood. Um, I think we shift that idea a little bit by, by uh, updating that number to being more like 60% of what we import is probably, or 60% of what we consume is probably imported. That being said, that's still quite a bit. And we still do need to care about this issue of, are we exporting our environmental degradation? I mean, yeah, that's fascinating. It, it reminds me of um, this idea of the Kuznets curve, mm -hmm. the idea, right, that you can kind of grow your way to environmental quality and just different mechanisms proposed for that. And it has been found that, right, for certain pollutants, is my understanding, once a certain amount of economic growth has occurred, the, the rate of pollution goes down for certain pollutants. And one of the most important critiques of that that I've heard of is, a lot of that is facilitated by deindustrialization and the export of very pollutant intensive sectors, right? So the United States is effectively post-industrial and the, you know, arguably part of the reason why we're able to pollute not as much as we otherwise would is that we're importing all of these goods that have like embodied energy, have a lot of these embodied problems with them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that is exactly one of the, the big motivations that we have for, for trying to get this improved trade data is to be able to tie those, um, and those environmental impacts with the seafood that we're importing and really be able to look country by country over time. Um, is, the, is the environmental impact associated with consumption? Has that actually just stayed the same but shifted locations? Right, yeah. Um, Okay, so there's several other topics that, I, that we wanted to kind of try to get to. I know we've already taken up a fair amount of your time, but well, you mentioned when we were preparing for this interview also, Jessica, that you had been starting to look a bit into the relationship between the COVID pandemic and, and seafood and the seafood sector. Um, could you talk to us just a bit about what you're starting to do there? Yeah, sure. So uh, as I, I think I sort of alluded to this earlier that um, in addition to looking at how trade drives these distant environmental impacts, I've also been interested in how environmental disruptions can sort of propagate through these trade networks and create food security risks for, for different individuals. So I've been doing work looking at historical environmental and policy shocks to trade and trying to understand um, what happened in those situations, how was trade affected. That then uh, caused, I think, an, a number of people to approach me about how COVID was impacting, impacting trade. And it's, it is a, a relevant and an important question. One critical distinction here, though, is that a lot of the work that I and others have done on looking at uh, shocks to food systems have been really production focused, actually, whereas the COVID pandemic has impacted everyone along the supply chain, but has been especially a demand side shock. So we are talking about people dramatically changing how they're consuming food, that they're not able to go to restaurants, their movements are restricted, they're more interested in, in purchasing shelf-stable um, foods, especially at the beginning of all of this. And so that shifted a lot of, um, a lot of the demand away from restaurants that are buying up 
a, a pretty wide diversity of fish. It tends to be fresh fish and increasing the demand a lot for canned seafood and for frozen. So, so there's this important distinction, but um, throughout this process, I started um, really my starting point for this for was scraping news articles and, and doing a lot of um, work just pulling out of all of these sort of industry reportings and news reportings on the ground about what was what was happening. Um, and in those early stages, we can we saw a lot about the restrictions on trade. This all, of course, started in in China. In fact, um, allegedly with a a shrimp uh, sales person in in this um, in this market. And so seafood was kind of at the center from the get go because China is the largest uh, producer, consumer, and exporter of um, of seafood around the world. And uh, this occur started with a, a seafood salesperson in the market. As, as kind of an interesting aside, there were a lot of rumors early on about whether or not you got within China about whether or not you could get COVID from from seafood, and um, and that created some some fear around it. And so uh, that was that was interesting. We were still trying to figure out the disease. There was this a little bit of stigma around around seafood, um, but in 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 response, and as we learned more about how the disease was spread, China started. Uh, restricting um, restricting trade and putting safety checkpoints in place at the ports. So this was slowing down a lot of trade. Um, seafood, obviously, China is also a major importer of seafood and especially of some uh, live products, which uh, don't do well with, with uncertainty in their supply chains. Um, China also put in place measures uh, banning the import of live seafood for a bit there and that then created these backups in places like um, in South Africa, where they're specializing in producing some of these uh, live products for, for trade. So that that was a pretty big big impact. And then as things started to move and expand, we were we were seeing these um, this divergence in a little bit in in impacts on um, frozen versus versus fresh products. Do those consumer demands and a a big shift in of course. Uh, in-home consumption versus versus restaurants. So those are sort of the very early impacts. But of course, as it's been unfolding, there are, are more things coming to light with outbreaks in processing facilities. Um, of course, the economic crisis and uncertainty means that you have fewer investments in some of the planned operations. And going back to this idea that aquaculture is still this uh, growing industry, you know, there are a lot of these startups and places that are doing more experimental things that might not be able to uh, weather the storm. So that might be a real setback for some of those kinds of innovations. And then your standard aquaculture producers are ha we're having to make decisions about how much to produce. So they're having to make, you know, production decisions, not knowing what the future is going to be like. So how much do I invest in fry and um, other juveniles at this, at this point when we're in the midst of a pandemic? So we very well might be feeling um, those impacts sort of at the end of those grow out cycles, depending on what, what they all were able to do or chose to do, uh, in, in light of this, these economic conditions. Yeah. I mean, it really just impresses upon you just how interconnected everything is. Right. And, you know, once you start trading, um, as a organization or a country that, that helps you, that avails you of resources that you wouldn't otherwise have, but it also potentially introduces a vulnerability, right? Like if, if that trade stops, then suddenly you have to adapt um, 
to that cessation of that resource, whatever it is. May I have you, um, are you just also looking at how folks are adapting to this disturbance? Yeah, we definitely are. And um, just on the, on the sort of double-edged sword, I guess, of trade though, mm. that you're maybe alluding yeah. to, um, we, we did see early on with some of these producers when China was, um, was restricting imports. You saw major producers out of Chile, salmon producers out of Chile then were able to pretty quickly uh, redirect their exports toward the U.S. market. So essentially because they were really globalized, they have these connections, they shifted supply chains pretty quickly. And I think we saw it with some shrimp in Ecuador too. And the U.S. like absorbed pretty much all of, all of that in the initial stages. And so you saw uh, their prices not really uh, substantially impacted. Um, during the, that period of time when, um, when China was, was the central point of the pandemic. Meanwhile, as I was saying, some of these specialized industries that are really export dependent, but really dependent on a single partner, those are the ones that got uh, really hammered. And so there's really kind of this, this balance of, of those two pieces. But as you were mentioning, uh, this realization of of some of these vulnerabilities from from supply chains, I think, has caused a little bit of a resurgence in in local locally focused seafood. And this is one of the one of the most prevalent adaptations we've seen is um, is fishers and sellers connecting more directly and doing direct sale to consumers. Um, and there've been both just community sort of community facilitated ones, as well as uh, some organizations created applications to help you find local fishers that sell uh, their seafood. And so um, we've seen this, this rather quick response of, uh, of, of sort of cutting out a number of those uh, steps in the supply chain and going more to direct consumer mm. sales. Part of that then has led to also some consumer re-education because consuming what's caught locally in season is going to look pretty different if you're talking about, um, you know, fresh monkfish as compared to going and buying um, a fresh filet at your market. Those are, those are, or getting it already prepared by a chef. So there've been chefs working on uh, some re-education and, and doing demos of how to, how to prepare these, these seafoods on a, on a much more local level. That's fascinating. It's good to know there's an app for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the question is, you know, is this, is this a lasting change? Does, does mm -hmm. that change how people mm -hmm. view seafood in the U S in a longer, in, in the longer run, or is this a sort of blip in our relationship to seafood? Right. And then as soon as the pandemic is over enough, or even maybe before then we go back running to the way things were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stefan, do you have something? Yeah. Well, uh, Unless you want to have a follow-up to that question, I, I wanted to switch over to asking a little bit more about your position as a what I would see as very much applied interdisciplinary academic. And I don't know what your journey has been in terms of transitioning from uh, maybe a disciplinary-oriented focus, or if you've maybe more or less had always a, a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary perspective, or even I've heard the term now undisciplinary journey. And it seems that you've taken really a, a problem-oriented perspective in your work where you, you focus on seafood networks, you focus on the challenges they have, and then you look and use different methodologies to try to understand that. And 
is that something that you learned and, and grew into? Is that something that you trained into? And I'm also interested in the influence of being at Sessing, which also is, as far as I understand, you know, it's, it's an institute which tries to bring together those different perspectives and, and brings a problem-oriented perspective into, into research. Yeah, um, and I guess I, I should even go back with this maybe to my, my approach when I was in under, I think, I think this interdisciplinary approach maybe started when I was in undergrad. I've always been more interested in, in just following the ideas and questions that I think are most interesting because I don't start from an assumption that um, all of the interesting questions and approaches would would lie in a single discipline. I think there's no reason to expect that um, that yeah that that one discipline is going to have all the answers to the most interesting questions. And so I, I've I've started from that I guess interdisciplinary approach. And where that really came through in my undergraduate education is that. Um, I started out actually as a chemistry major and was planning to do chemistry and art history to go into art restoration, wildly enough. Um, but in chemistry, they have this really, they had a really restrictive uh, course requirement set. And so it was like, you could take one, one elective per year or something like that. And I just didn't, I didn't like, I guess, feeling so limited and not being able to take other classes that I thought were just interesting. It also would have made it so that I couldn't study abroad, which I would say was, was probably central in, in part of this story of how I got interested in seafood that I left out, which is that I spent a semester in, in Ghana, which, and I was, when I was there, I was taking entirely uh, fisheries and fisheries management classes. And it was just a totally different perspective on thinking about fisheries, more as food, but also as um, how differently fisheries management is 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 really thought of in um, in that context where you have more small scale fishers and a lot of people in the class engage in fisheries. So it's a really different um, approach than I would say I got here here in the U.S. to to fisheries. And so um, so I wanted to be able to just I guess take all of the the bits and pieces for that I thought were interesting. I really liked some of my economics classes, but I was really also enjoying my ecology classes. I loved my math and stats classes and was just kind of taking whichever classes I thought was most interesting and with the assumption that that would eventually lead to doing something interesting. And so I think if, you, if you're really open to where you end up, um, I think this is actually a really good approach. <laughs> um, but if, if, you're, if you're dead set on becoming a doctor, you probably shouldn't just like dabble in, in what you think is, is most interesting. Like you probably should follow the, the specific route, but I was really interested in where I, or really open in where I landed. Um, so as I just kind of ex explored and took more and more classes in mostly math, stats and ecology, um, that then led me to grad school. And even though then I was sort of narrowing in on more an invasive species approach, um, when I shifted gears, I realized that there wasn't quite the expertise in my department for that. It was more natural science kind of environmental science department. So I spent um, a summer at, over at IASA, which is the International Institute of Applied Systems Analysis, doing more like systems, systems thinking work, and then um, spent a summer and then another couple of months over at the Stockholm Resilience Center, 
um, with a lot of people who are uh, very interdisciplinary thinkers from from an even more diverse range of of uh, of disciplines. And um, from there, I realized I think I think that that was where the most interesting questions were really that we're bringing together some of these more systems thinking fundamental science along the with uh, some of those human applications to be able to, to do work that feels both interesting and important. Um, I would say then looking at opportunities here in the US of like of kind of where's where's the most Stockholm resilience kind of thinking occurring. I think that was part of what brought me to uh, SUSINC, so the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center, um, which is part of the University of Maryland. And the entire goal there was to bring together people from across the social and natural sciences to answer these more integrated questions. Um, and I, I'd say that that was really influential because I was able to spend every day around people who thought really differently. I shared an office, I guess, over the course of that time with, um, you know, someone who's a straight ecologist, more of a hydrologist, um, someone who's a more conservation biologist, and then later with a geographer and a straight anthropologist. And so you really are spending sort of day in, day out, engaging with uh, people who are coming from a really different perspective. And that is helpful, both because sometimes there are useful tools that you learn, but I think even more importantly, you learn that for the question I'm focused on, who are the people I might want to reach out to? Who are, what are the kinds of expertise that are really relevant to this new question that I have to make sure we have the right people at the table to answer this question? Because I know it's too big of a question for me to answer on my own. Yeah, I was, at this point in history, are we losing more from a disciplinary oriented science system than we're gaining? I think it's an interesting mm -hmm. to see this transition to at least in, in, in Germany where I am and in, in, in Europe, there's a lot more institutes coming up, which are problem oriented um, rather, which are, or, or, I mean, my institute specifically focus on tropical marine issues and use and these things like Cessnick and Stockholm Resilience Center, which have specific problem oriented, perhaps normative mandates as well. And it seems a lot of people are, they had to fight their way like you did through a, a disciplinary training and had to meander. And a lot of the folks on this podcast seem to have, uh, not the traditional journey. Uh, that seems to be more of the mainstream, actually, that you didn't have a traditional journey through the system. Yeah, and then when people ask me about it from a, sort of a job career perspective, especially people who want to go into academics, I think, I think that you have to go in knowing that it is a little bit of a risk because you are still going and interviewing in a lot of uh, traditional disciplines, um, departments, or you're going and interviewing in an, an interdisciplinary department kind of by name, but everyone in there is sort of doing their disciplinary thing and occasionally they work together. And so that's sort of the downside of it. And they might not know how to place you. I heard from somebody actually on a, um, on the search committee from a position that I didn't get, but I thought it was still a kind of funny comment that uh, in their discussion, they, I think they said that the social scientist said I was an economist. The economist said I was an ecologist and the ecologist said I was a social scientist. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like, they just couldn't really place me. And that that was one of the like biggest arguments kind of against me being in that department. I mean, it reminds me of in politics, you hear sometimes the person in the middle hears it from both sides. 
right? Because you got to be on one side or the other. And if you're kind of, well, I'm somewhere in the middle, I believe in this, I like that, then that's kind of the hardest place to be sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. That being said, I think that, um, I think that you can sort of fit yourself to maybe more positions, especially if you do maintain some, some real chops in, in a discipline and, and uh, maybe pitch yourself to one of those departments. And if they're kind of open-minded and are putting out there one of these positions, which I think are increasingly common, where they want somebody who does do some interdisciplinary work, I, I guess the question is sort of how, how much interdisciplinary work do they really want? How multidisciplinary do they really want them? Because um, I think some of these uh, initiatives are maybe, they, they want it on paper, but I'm not sure how much they, they really want it in, in practice. But it's right, yeah. 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 Um, all right, Jessica, this has been terrific. Is there any um, final thoughts or ideas, goings on that you want to share before we wrap up? Uh, no, at the moment, not at the moment that I can think of. I mean, like in, from a personal perspective, it feels so weird to have had this conversation feel so one-sided. Like, I feel like, I feel like I wish I could ask you back so many of these questions, but it seems that's not how this runs. That was not a question I asked at the beginning, but yeah. Um, yeah. I'd love I mean, to hear your guys' take at some point. Cause like you guys know a lot on these subjects. Well, we haven't done, um, return visits to guests yet, but it's certainly something that would be fun to do just have a series. Um, yeah, exactly. With different types of guests. So if you want to, if you want to chat more, we can certainly do that at some point. <laughs> yeah. That's organized. Yeah. If you want to come back on, we can do another round and you can just uh, ask us questions. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be fun. I'll do like listener submitted questions back to you. There we go. Uh, yeah. Perfect. Well, thanks Jessica. That was really fun. Yeah. Thank you both. Yeah, thanks for sharing your time and your thoughts. Of course. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is part of a larger project known as the Environmental Social Science Network. You can find us at essnetwork.net. There you'll find information about the podcast and other projects that we're working on, and you can contact us with any ideas about any of these projects. If you have an idea for who would be a good guest for the show, or you think you'd be a good guest for the show yourself, or if you just want to get involved in some other way, don't hesitate to reach out.